Welcome to a new episode of Would an Idiot Do This? Today, we follow up last week's conversation on the closure of the border to Australian citizens in India. The facts now show the government has granted exemptions for over 130,000 Australians to travel overseas in the past 14 months for a variety of reasons. These people left with permission for reasons deemed valid by the same government that then abandoned them in their time of need. Let's not beat around the bush here. None of these are leisure travellers. Very few people would elect to pay over $3,000 for the privilege of being in mandatory hotel quarantine on their return home. Today, Nick joins us on the pod. He works as an immigration agent predominantly for inbound visas, people looking to come to Australia. And in our discussion today, Nick outlines how his role has changed during COVID and how the exemption system to enter Australia has changed and affected the families caught in the middle. We discuss the inconsistencies around de facto definitions and why despite changes in laws opening up more opportunities for gay couples, they can still come across prejudice and roadblocks. We discuss specific examples of partners separated by border closures and how rewarding Nick's role is when he is able to inform someone they can now come to Australia. Oh, there he is. Hello. How are you? How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Let's start with what it is you do and how you're well-versed on all the things going on in terms of entering Australia. Yeah, sure. So, so I'm a registered migration agent, which is a, it's a government department. I don't actually work for the government. I'm just registered with a government body. Basically, what we do is either help people stay in Australia by going through all their options and then taking through the whole application process or help bring people to Australia by going through the same process. That, that pretty much sums up what you're doing. I think that's going to give you a bit of a unique sort of perspective on how Australia's handled all this and, and the changes yeah. you've had to deal with constantly. Because I know visa processes can take quite a while. And if it changes, yeah, definitely. it kind of throws a... Uh, I'm sure you've seen quite a few situations where that's thrown you for a loop in terms of your process. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, it's a bit easier to run a business when, when the, it's not constantly changing. But having said that, it still does change quite a bit. So even, you know, family sponsorship approval process is in the process of changing at the moment and this, the um, same-sex marriage laws changing, change things in immigration as well. Um, it actually opened up a lot more avenues. I thought it would be good to get your perspective of working in that field and how that's over the past 12, 15 months, how it's constantly evolved and, and yep. the changes you've seen. You know, the initial thing was flatten the curve yep. and somewhere along the line that's turned into eradicate the virus entirely, which is mm. interesting. All right. So from your perspective, how do you think Australia's handled that? I think pretty well overall. We're in a really good position now with, well, I mean, we get the odd case here and there, but it's not too bad. I guess from a perspective of protecting us, we've done fairly well, but from the perspective of keeping people out and, you know, determining between who should enter and who shouldn't enter, it's been questionable at, at stages, I'd say. Yeah, so I know early days, for example, Iran was banned before Italy was banned when it was worse there. Yeah, 
I, do you know, honestly, I think that was because they, they wanted the Grand Prix teams to get into Melbourne from Italy. But yeah, I mean, the situation in Italy was way worse than Iran and they closed the border to Iran before they closed it to Italy. And then more recently, Australians have been banned from entering who are living in India that, or not living yeah. in India, rather that are in India. What do you make of that decision to make it uh, illegal well, for Australians to? <laughs> I think that what you said in the last podcast was pretty much bang on. You know, why we can't have a quarantine facility that is purpose-built in each, in each state or at least the major, you know, the major gateways into Australia, so Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, you know, why we can't have a, a specific quarantine facility, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially, look, I think that the government did really well protecting the economy with JobKeeper and, you, you know, those, those types of initiatives. They could have easily built quarantine facilities with, with some of those funds. Far out, they've had 18 months. Yeah to get this yeah. shit together for if something exactly. like that was to happen so that Australians could get home and we're still in the situation where there's tens of thousands of Australians stranded overseas, which is just strange. Yeah it, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense why they've done it the way they've done it. And, you know, all, all of our issues have stemmed from, from the quarantine system. You know, the Victorian government has even put a proposal to the federal government. They're going to build it. They're going to operate it. They're going to do everything. They just want the federal government to fund it and they still haven't got an answer. Yeah, no rush. So, no, 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 no rush at all. It's, yeah. We've got here situations with regards to exemptions, which I know we wanted to mm. touch on. Look, as, as someone who works in travel myself, I saw that being, uh, I wouldn't say abused, but a lot of people were putting, I'll go for longer than three months without ever having the intention of doing so, which yep. simply added to the backlog we see today due to the current restrictions on number of entries to Australia. So you got some thoughts on who is exempt, who is not, so on and so forth? Outbound exemptions, it's, it's all about employment. There's a few other reasons, but the main ones that the comp, you know, everyday people would be applying for are employment or business reasons. And then the other one is travelling for at least three months for a compelling reason but you're right there has been a lot of situations where you know people say they're going to travel for three months and then return several weeks later but what we sort of are more focused on within the work that I do is more the incoming exemption there are some occupations so if you've got a certain occupation you're exempt if it's a high demand occupation there are other avenues for exemption but the main ones that we sort of see are family members of Australian citizens. So that's, that is only de facto partners and spouses, so married couples, uh, and children of Australian citizens and permanent residents. So that doesn't extend to parents. So a lot of situations where, you know, parents haven't met their grandchildren yet because their grandchildren have been born in Australia and the parents are stuck overseas wanting to come and visit. Uh, that We say that quite a bit. Um, and then the other reason why they, the other main exemption reason is compelling, compassionate, which is, it has to be really compelling and really compassionate for them to even consider it. Like, you know, 
if you had this is this is for inbound you're talking yeah exactly mostly there's a lot of people who have had mental health issues throughout the throughout the pandemic and applied for exemptions on the basis of you know they're struggling because their partner's not here and they get rejected pretty much every time so with with when the government does things like close the border to india what mm. are some sort of example scenarios that you guys could come across in your line of work where what what does that cause uh as you know like i'm in melbourne there's a lot of indian there's a massive indian population in yep. melbourne so you know you see a lot of cases where people will return to india to get married you know visit family a lot of a lot of people study in india and have children who still live in india because they don't want to bring their children to australia yet so you know closing the border in that way where a, a permanent resident or a citizen because a lot of them do become citizens is they're stuck in india for an indefinite period of time is just it's just completely unreasonable regarding some of these I suppose the border restrictions and how that affects you were mentioning, obviously de facto relationships and, you know, spouses, wives, all that kind of stuff. What kind of examples have you seen where people have not been given an exemption in those scenarios and what steps are you seeing that they have to suddenly take to, yeah, to work their way back? Well, there's a lot of people will apply on de facto grounds because they're not married yet. In immigration, the definition of a de facto partner is you either have to have lived together for 12 months and have to, and prove that with, you know, lease agreement, utilities, utility bills, yep, that sort yep, of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Joint bank account, etc. The other option is you can register your relationship in certain States. If you've registered your relationship, you don't actually have to have lived together for 12 months. So what, what a lot of people have tried to do unsuccessfully is register their relationship with their partner who's overseas and then apply for an exemption on the basis that they've registered their relationship and meet the definition of a de facto de facto couple in the regulations. But it doesn't, you know, I think the most I've heard someone tries like 30 times and just they just keep on trying and trying and trying and get rejected and rejected. Can but, I ask, would it, would these normally be rejected in standard times or are we talking very specifically because of the restrictions on incoming? Well, the restrictions are because of COVID. So um, so there's, there's two things, right? So in normal times, you have to have a visa to enter Australia, no matter what, no matter what nationality you are, okay? In COVID times, you need to have a visa, but then you also have to have an exemption as well. So what we've sort of been advising clients to do is still go through the relationship registration process that that will make you eligible for a partner visa and apply for an offshore partner visa, because if they get an offshore partner visa, they're automatically exempt from entering Australia and they don't, they don't need to get an exemption. So that that's sort of a way we've found around it, but it's still, it's the cost. So, you know, pre-pandemic what a lot of people would do is they would get a visitor visa and then they would come to Australia you know do all the things they need to get ready to apply for a partner visa they're here for three months you know register their relationship open a joint bank account sign a lease agreement do all those things and then apply for an onshore partner visa and then and then they get a bridging visa that allows them to stay while the application's processing but 
they can't really do that at the moment because when they, they, they apply for the exemption, it gets rejected. So instead, we've been doing this process where they apply offshore instead. And it's, it's a bit of a, it, it's hard because you have to be really committed, right? So if you're applying for a visitor visa, depending on what country you're from, it's either free or it's $145. Not, not, it's not going to break the bank. But if you're applying for a partner visa, it's going to cost, you know, almost $8,000 in government fees. And then if you're using a migration agent, you know, add a few thousand dollars on top of that. So it quickly adds up to eleven, twelve thousand $12,000 thereabouts. So it's sort of, it's a big commitment for someone to make on the basis of a relationship that might not be necessarily that well established yet, you know, so... And that's all because the basic de facto getting denied constantly for the exemption to enter yeah, Australia. Yeah, that's right. Like, put it this way, I, I've seen married couples with less evidence get granted an exemption over de facto cover, couples with a lot more evidence. Um, why would that be? Because they're married. Simple as that. It, I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple as that. Put it this way they take a much harsher interpretation on a de facto relationship when they're doing an exemption over when they're doing a partner visa application. An exemption, there's no fees involved in applying for an exemption. You just apply for it. And, you know, I'd, I'd say a case officer probably takes five minutes to look at it and then it's, it's very black and white. They're either going to reject it or they're not. Uh, whereas a partner visa, it, it's a lot more of a process. So, you know, they, look at the evidence you can add more evidence to the application after it's been lodged you know once they start processing it they will ask you for more information if they're not satisfied it's a bit more of a sort of a back and forth process with the department but that's because you're paying the fees but in a lot of the cases these people probably would have paid the fees anyway it's just that they haven't really had the opportunity to live in australia together first there was a Gold Coast woman I saw who, due to give birth and trying to get her partner here for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're actually a Brazilian couple, but she was an Australian citizen and he's living, he was living in New Zealand. And what happened was she was due to give birth in September last year and they started applying for exemptions in July and the only reason he was living in New Zealand is because he was working to save money because they were about to have a baby. And and he had a good job in New Zealand and he just wanted to, you know, knuckle down and, and you know, work as much as he could before he came back to Australia. And, you know, they, I think they, they applied for several exemptions which were knocked back because they'd registered their relationship, but they didn't, they hadn't actually lived together at all. But you would think that, you know, having a child would, <laughs> that, that would trump, you know. Three the, months living together factor. or whatever, right. Or at least, at least, you know, give it to them on compassionate grounds. But uh, no, it, 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 you know, they, they had a lot of trouble. Uh, in the end, she was in, she was in several newspapers and she was even on the project talking about her, her case to, you know, Waleed and, and the crew there mm-hmm. so they ended up granting it and he made it out of quarantine just in time to make it to the birth so it was a happy ending but 
you know, the lengths they had to go to, it should really, it should have just been, you sit, submit the exemption request, you get the approval within a couple of days, he travels, he quarantines, and he is able to support her through the last, you know, two months of her pregnancy. That's mm. how it should have been. Australia changed some of the laws around gay marriage, etc. a few years ago. How has that affected people? And then how does it affect them within this whole period of COVID exemptions and whatnot? Especially if yeah. they're coming from overseas where it's not always as socially accepted. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so the, the major difference is a, a couple could apply for a partner visa on the basis of being married as opposed to being in a de facto relationship. And furthermore, they could actually apply for a prospective marriage visa and be able to travel. To, so the prospective marriage visa is a visa that allows someone to travel to Australia and get married and apply for a partner visa. And normally we recommend prospective marriage visas in situations where the relationship's not well enough established to apply for a partner visa and, and or they're from a country where they can't get a visitor visa. So, you know, pretty much Africa, a lot of African countries, you know, the middle, some Middle Eastern countries, you know, Asia, South America sometimes, they're considered more high-risk countries. So they get they're much higher risk of refusal for, uh, you know, applying for a visitor visa. So we usually go down the prospective marriage visa pathway instead. Can you explain and, when you say high risk countries, etc.? What does that mean to a layman? So high risk, basically any country that's not eligible for an ETA, Electronic Travel Authority. And there's varying degrees. And, and look, it's not really spelled out clearly. It's just sort of known amongst, you know, immigration agents and lawyers what, what a high-risk country is and then what is the higher degree of risk for certain countries. So so if someone's applying for a visitor visa, the, the main criteria are that they have to show that they intend on returning to their country of origin. So they've got employment, they've got family, they've got assets. Sometimes they can have all of those things. And just because they're from a country where there could be a civil war about to break out, well, no matter what they have in their home country, they're probably not going to want to go back. So that's, that's the way it's kind of viewed. And if that person is at high risk of staying in Australia, overstaying their visitor visa, then it's probably going to get refused. Yeah, so that's effectively it what it means is that someone's at risk of overstaying their visa because they yeah. do not want to go home. Yep. That's right. If I had a dollar for every visitor visa refusal <laughs> that I saw, it's, and circling back to how this is relevant to prospective, uh, sorry, to gay couples is that that option was never open to gay couples before. The prospective marriage visa? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so they, there was really no way that they could be, you know, the, the only way would be is if their Australian partner went over there and lived with them for 12 months, but try proving that, right? Right, right, yeah. Try proving a de facto relationship if you're, in a, you're a gay couple living in Islamabad, for example. It's, it's illegal to be gay in Pakistan, right? So, you know, you can't sign a joint lease agreement. You can't open a joint bank account. You can't do any of the things you need to do to prove a relationship so this change in the in the marriage laws 
it just opened up a lot of opportunities that were not there before. We've, we've had situations where they've been given a harder time by a case officer. They've been asked for a lot more evidence than a, a comparable straight couple might get asked for. Why, why would that be the case? Generally, it's in situations where the case officer is in a country where being gay is not commonly accepted. So, so the, way, the way it works uh, with, with the processing, so pretty much any application that's done in Australia is more than likely going to get processed in Australia. But if, it's, if, if the applicant is outside of Australia, it's more likely to get processed in a, either in the country where that applicant is or the nearest country that has a visa processing centre. So it's, it's done through whatever the Australian High Commission is. Um, so, for example, you know, in the Middle East, they're usually done in um, oh, Lebanon. What's the capital of Lebanon? Beirut. Beirut. They're normally done in Beirut. So I, I did know that. I just couldn't remember. Uh, so they're normally done in Beirut. You know, like Africa, they're normally done in Nairobi or Johannesburg. Sure. Um, yeah, so, so on. So, so generally what happens is in those offshore postings where they're processing applications, you have an Australian team leader and then you have a bunch of local case officers assessing the applications. Right, so, so it goes had, through the lens of that person's Yeah, views. so if you had, you know, if you had a, a, a gay couple, a, a gay applicant applying from Pakistan, for example, that application is probably going to get processed by a case officer in Islamabad from Islamabad. So then they bring in their local prejudices and you have to deal with that. You have to sort of, sometimes we have to complain and go above them and say, you know, this is not, this is not being treated fairly. Yeah. You make these types of complaints and then, and then they, they tend to sort of, cause then it goes to a senior case officer, usually from Australia and and then they they take it pretty seriously so yeah right now with your with what you do you would also have the ability and the privilege and the excitement of getting people through this process and and to the other side and entering australia and how rewarding is that for you what what has that felt like particularly in the last 15 months where that process has become all the more oh, challenging yeah, it's it's thoroughly rewarding uh you know I, in the last week, I've made two clients cry. <laughs> so, but that's just because they were overwhelmed. Like they were just so happy that they could, that they were going to either be able to stay in Australia or come to Australia and, and be with their partner. So it's sort of, you know, growing up here, you just don't really have a, have a, any idea of what it's, you know, how much people would give to, to live in Australia. It, it really like, this is, it's really opened my eyes over the last five years. And yeah, you're right. Particularly over the last 18 months where, you know, even just, you know, typical couples, you know, Aussie, Aussie going to London, meeting their partner in the UK and wanting to bring them back to Australia. And, you know, that, that sort of classic story, even that hasn't been able to unfold as it normally would. And, you know, yeah, it's 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 thoroughly rewarding. Well, why don't you give your business a little plug, just in case someone in Poland or Eritrea <laughs> or Eswatini or Lesotho is listening or Iran. 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, if, you, if, if you're interested in, in learning more, feel free to reach out to us. Um, so handsomemigration.com.au. That's H-A-N-S-E-N, not to be confused with Umbop. Yes, <laughs> not the boy band. No, it's not the boy band. So no, handsomemigration.com.au. We do do free assessments as well. So, you know, you can book a consultation and we'll go through, talk you through it and explain what your options are. Speaking more broadly from an Australian perspective with what you've seen, you've lived in Melbourne as well, which is probably the harshest mm. Australian city for lockdown yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Where where do you see this going? Do you see, you know, is it is it we're all vaccinated, we can travel freely, or will it be gradual corridors? What do you think's next in the world of Australian borders? Mm, I, I think it will it will unfold in the way that it kind of folded up in the first place. So, you know, I think first it was China. We closed our border to China. Then we closed it to South Korea and Iran and then Italy and then everyone and, and now India even more so. And I think it will kind of go the other way. So we've opened up to New Zealand. We'll open up to the Pacific nations, maybe Singapore, maybe Hong Kong. And it will just gradually open up to countries where the vaccination numbers are high and the case numbers are low. But it could you know that could take two years all right buddy i'll let you get back to it back to life eh yeah all right mate all right mate good chat take it easy that concludes this episode of would an idiot do this before i go we have ventured into a new area with a sports only podcast titled sports speak this will be covering all sports near and far with deep dives as well into some of the biggest sporting moments in history You can find this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and it'll keep this podcast near and dear to the social issues, news and politics genre it's meant to be and move our sports discussions into a separate area. I'm really excited for it. I would love you to go ahead, rate, subscribe, all that good stuff, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'll catch you guys on the flippity flip.